I would have gone vanilla with that sweater. Ice cream, $3. I think I would have parked a little closer. Gas, $22. Whoa. I think... Haircut, $30. What? Ah, I would have looked out for the water main. But that's just me. Monday morning quarterbacks, priceless. There are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. I would have double bagged it. All right, good morning. And we're talking about priceless, not MasterCard commercials. But we're talking about our, our uh, enduring commitments as followers of Christ here, the values, the things that we hold to at Door Creek Church. So um, I, I know you thought you were coming to church, but actually uh, we're going to do a pop quiz. Okay, <laughs> got to get your paper out, pencils out. First question, got just four, so it shouldn't be too tough. First question. Do you know God? Do you know God? It's kind of a yes or a no question. Do you know God? Second question is, what do you know about God? What do you know about God? And um, if you were to start writing out what you know about God, how much of that blank piece of paper, or you're going to start taking some notes today, how much of that could you fill up? How many of those would you need before you said, well, I don't think I can write down anything more. That's it. That's what I know. Uh, Third question. How did you come to know that knowledge? And I'd say the most important question is the last one. How sure are you of that knowledge? The, the, the stuff that you say you know about God, how sure are you that that is actually true, that that's correct? We're talking about the Bible this morning. It has a little to do about knowing God has a little to do with that last, that last question. This is the very first Bible I ever was given. Um, it was given by my home church. All the four-year-olds got it as we graduated into kindergarten. It says here that um, I got it July 1st, 1982. Wait a minute. That would be 62. 1962. 49. Yeah, that's right. 49. You know what they say, 50 is the new 30, so I figure I'm just 29, right? I love this new math. It's working for me. Now, obviously at four, well, maybe not obviously, but at least I don't think I was reading it for. I know I wasn't. I wasn't reading it for. But I, I can tell you this book was really special to me at a young age. And one of the things that I would do is I looked at these pictures, and I especially remember this one of the crucifixion, just staring at it a lot. And um, it's this book that over the years, and even as a young boy, started to shape my life, introduced me to the God who made this world, the God who made me, the God who knows me and loves me and showed that in the sending of his own son. I'm sure my parents' attitudes about this word shaped me. I remember seeing my dad every year kind of going through the NAE one-year Bible reading and checking off the boxes every year, reading through the Bible. Remember my mom always having the, the Bible and the daily bread out at the kitchen table after we left for school. She was going through it. So th- this, this word has had profound impact in my life, this Bible. So a couple weeks ago, we were picking up a new car. Our second daughter um, was living with grandma this year up in Minnesota, and so we, we were down a car. So went over to Honda Zembrick, got a new car, and was sitting down to pick it up. 
And Dave Johnson, the salesman, great guy, says to me as he slides over this blue packet, it's got all the owner's manual stuff, and he says, Mark, this is your Bible. I said, really, Dave? He said, that's fascinating. You know, I'm a pastor. We've been talking the last couple of days in this deal. He knew I was a pastor. I said, you know, I, that's a funny thing. I was preaching just yesterday. I picked it up on a Monday. Just preaching just yesterday. This doesn't look anything like the Bible I was preaching out of yesterday. Oh, I knew exactly, you know exactly what he meant when he said, this is your Bible. That this owner's man gives you everything you need to know on how to operate this car and enjoy it for a long time and have it for a long time. Know how to maintain it. It's like the, the joy of cooking, right, ladies, of, of Honda Accords. It's, it's the Bible. It's the authoritative word on, on a subject. Now, when you think about the Bible as being like an owner's manual, I'd like to suggest to you that that's not quite right. Because when, when it does that, guess who becomes the subject of it? Me. It's, it's the owner's manual for me and how I'm supposed to do life. Well, it has all kinds of bearing on how we do life. But let me suggest to you, it is a revelation. Well, that's not a word we use a lot. It, it, it is, it, it's a letter from God telling us what, what God is like. It, it's, it's written to us from God so that we get to know him, the God of this universe, and know what it means to have a relationship with him. So it, it, it's not like Jane Burns' great seller right now, The Secret. You've heard about that one? Well, here's what she says about her book and about The Secret. She says, In this book, I'm bringing together for the first time that which existed only in fragments by a few prominent people in history, promising that we can come to know. Now, listen to the promise of The Secret. Who we are and have, be, or do anything we want. Wow, that's a promise. You can have, you can be, you can do anything you want. You want to lose 10 pounds? Well, guess what? You just need to start thinking about that. And the power of attraction, all of a sudden, man, you start shedding pounds. It's cool. You, you want to compete with Tiger Woods in next year's U.S. Open? Well, you just got to start thinking about that. And all of a sudden, the power of attraction, your golf game just starts to go crazy good. Well, you know what? There's nothing new about the secret. The, the secret's as old as the first lie ever recorded in the Bible. When Satan said this, hey, Eve, take a bite. The day you do, here's what I promise you. You will be like God. Some of us feel like, man, I'm trying to know God. I, I, I feel like I'm in some kind of a cosmic game of hide and go seek. And, and I can't find him. I'm desperately searching for truth and for God and for meaning in this world. More importantly, just in my world, my life. Well, here's what's good to know. God hasn't put us in that kind of a situation where we're desperately seeking for him and we can't know who he is. Because when you open the pages of the scriptures and start right in the very beginning, page one, all of a sudden you meet a God who's talking. He's talking to us helping us know who he is. So look at the screen, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, the beginning of the Bible, very first words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
And throughout chapter one, God's speaking. God said, God said, God said. And we find out very quickly and come to this conclusion. God's words are very powerful. He simply speaks the whole universe into existence and he doesn't use anything. All things come into existence out of nothing through the power of his words. We meet a God who can fashion a man's body out of the dust and then breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, his breath, and he becomes a living soul. He has this relationship with, God, with Adam and Eve, places them in a garden. He talks with them. They, they talk with him. He tells them what's good and he tells them what's not good. He brings judgment to the scene when they they break his clear command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the midst of judgment, whether they liked it or not, his powerful word was binding. They were under the curse now. But his word also brought not just judgment, but a word of hope and a promise of a savior. God creates this world through the power of his word and then he rules it. He rules his creation by his word. God continues to speak in the scriptures. We know about him speaking through the prophets. We read this in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, and many times in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he'd provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus Christ is called the word of God in the New Testament. John writes this in chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. So we have a God who speaks to us. He's been speaking to us from the very beginning. And he's speaking to us perfectly through his son. And so we have the word of God and we have the living word, Jesus Christ, God's revelation of what he's like. And when we think about Jesus and the authority that he had, we realize that he had authority over all things. So he had authority as a teacher. He had authority over demons so that he could command them to leave a person whom they were tormenting. He had, he had authority to forgive sin. He had authority over sickness and so he could heal the sick and the lame and the deaf and the blind. He had, a, he had authority over death. So he could speak a word like, Lazarus, come out. And his word had that power to bring him back to life. He had authority in people's lives so he could say to a a fisherman like Peter, hey, Peter, drop your nets and hey, come follow me. He had authority. He has authority, the word of God. So our God is a God who speaks. He's speaking through his word who gives us the beautiful portrait of his son called the living word, the perfect communication of what God is like. And so as we take up this second, this second value today, the Bible's authority, centering our lives on God's truth, we note that as Lisa beautifully depicted this tree of our values, that they're rooted and grow right here out of the word of God. 
The, the, the reason we say these are the things that we're committed to is because these are the things that we feel are at the heart of what God's serious about. We want to be serious about it. We want these to be our values. So what we're affirming here in this value is that this book is God's word, all of it. It's true. It's powerful. It's sufficient. It changes us. It marks our lives. It's without error. And that it has the right to dictate how we ought to think and what we ought to believe and how we ought to live our lives out. So we want to ask kind of three questions to guide us in our thoughts this morning. The first is this. Is the Bible God's word? Is the Bible God's word? And how can we know that this book is really God's book, God's word? Second question. What do we mean by the Bible's authority? And, and third, what do we mean by centering our lives? What does it look like to center our lives on God's truth? So let's get into that first one. Is the Bible God's word? And I encourage you, take out the sermon note page because there's going to be a ton of scriptures that we're going to go through and it's important that you write these down and that you go back and look at them because we don't have enough time to look at all of them in depth. But the first one we are going to spend a little bit more time on and, and um, I'll get to that in just a second. So first of all, the question, is the Bible God's word? Well, one of the things we want to say is it claims to be God's word. The phrase, thus says the Lord. It's a phrase that shows up 416 times in one of our modern translations. It's usually associated with one of the prophets who has been given a message from God for his people. And he says, as he gives it, this is what God says. Listen up. This is pretty important. Thus says the Lord. The Bible claims to be God's word. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. You'll find on page 843. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Probably the most important passage in the Bible, on the Bible, okay? 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Here's what it says. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word scripture shows up 51 times in our New Testament. Each time it's used, it's in reference to the Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament. Paul's saying that all of that scripture is God's word. In 2 Peter 3.16, write that verse down, 2 Peter 3.16 Peter's now talking about the scripture. And he says that all of Paul's writings are on a par with the scriptures. He assumes that what Paul has writing, he explicitly states that it's scripture too. And when we come to this word God breathed in 2 Timothy, I hope what's ringing in our ears is, hey, the breath of God, God breathed. That's like Genesis 1. Remember when he breathes into Adam, he becomes a, a living being. The, the scriptures being breathed out by God, they, they come from him. They, they are filled with the power of his breath that brings life as it did to, to Adam. It's associated with his words that come through God breathing out 
as I'm breathing out words to you right now. This scripture, all of it, Paul says, is God's. And it is useful. If you've got your Bibles open, one of the things he just told Timothy in verse 15 is, these are the scriptures that make you wise for salvation. They're, They're scriptures that can save you. And here he says in verse 16, they're useful for teaching teaching us about God and who he is and what it means to have a relationship with him. Teaching us what it means to, to uh, love our neighbor as ourself. Teaching us what it means to, to have a healthy self-regard. Understanding who we are is created in God's image. Teaching us how to do life together, whether it's marriage or family or, or in the work setting or in the classroom. It's teaching us. It's teaching us how to stay on the line of God's word, letting this word be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. It does that. But then it says, it also rebukes us. Well, well, that's when I got off the path. And then the word through the spirit starts, starts messing with my conscience in a good way. And it says, hey, buddy, that's not right. You've gotten off the path. That's, the word does that. It rebukes us and then it corrects us. It says, hey, here's the path. Here's how to get back on it. Go this way. That's the way that you want to go. Don't take the shortcut. And then it trains us, it says, trains us in righteousness so that, that we live out a life that is right before God and before our brothers and sisters. And it prepares us for every good work, for all the things that God has called us to do as he desires us to shine as his people. 2 Timothy 3.16, huge. All scripture God breathed. Well, how did he do it? 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 tells us how he did it, how he's given us the scripture. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God. How did it happen? As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when we have Isaiah's prophecy, it's because Isaiah, through the superintendency of the Holy Spirit, working in and through his life, gave us the very words that God wanted us to have. He didn't deny Isaiah's prophecy, his personality. He he used the language that he spoke, Hebrew, to write it. And he's given us his word. Jesus says this about God's word. John 17, 17, very important verse. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. So why do we believe this book is God's book, God's word? Well, because it claims to be. We can think about other reasons why we believe it. There's incredible manuscript evidence, like no other book of antiquity. The kinds of copies and manuscript evidence that we have is staggering. There there are the grand themes and the subject matter of this book that makes it pretty clear this is about God and about being godly and having a relationship with him. There's the way that God has preserved this book as it was written over 1,500 years that we go, it's certainly a divine book. The fulfilled prophecy of of all these messianic prophecies fulfilled in Christ. The probability is staggering. The unity of these different authors giving us this cohesive, united theme of God redeeming a people to himself through Christ, all for his glory. And it's the kind of stuff, as you think about it, it just blows your mind. Or, Or at least 
It did this guy. Check it out. Ah! The Bible freaks me out, man! It's the bestseller of all time! And get this! It was written by 40 different guys in three different continents over 1,500 years! Okay, freaky. Think about that. You got it? And they agreed on everything that they wrote about! What? If two of my friends and I write a report on the same subject, there's no way we're gonna agree on every point. Unless we, uh, you know. But 40! 40 different guys from different times, different places, and they wrote a book with 1,189 chapters, 1,984 pages, and 772,692 words! And they agreed on everything! And not one contradiction in the whole thing. Come here. And for centuries, critics have been trying to come up with dirt on the Bible by focusing on seeming contradictions. Seeming. And when you think about it, the Bible makes sense after all. Yeah. Oh, but one thing still bugs me. How can so many fishermen, shepherds, scholars, soldiers, kings, tent makers, prophets, priests, scribes, all write this book and still agree with each other? There's only one answer in that. God had to drive the entire process. Every thought, every word, every comma, every period, every exclamation point, every parenthesis, everything! Ah! And God used these guys like pens to write this perfect, shocking, amazing, scandalous, miraculous, life-changing book. If you just take 48 of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, the chances of those being fulfilled are like one out of every 10 to the 157th power. That's the same mathematical probability of releasing a blind man to roam aimlessly across the universe and find one pre-marked atom in a trillion, 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 billion universes. What does that mean? It means that the odds that this book comes from God is bigger, unimaginably bigger than the odds that it doesn't. It means that you, me, and everyone can trust this book with all our hearts. It means that my head's about to explode. So leave me alone. You're really starting to freak me out. Oh, I need a nap. <laughs> now, I, I really thought for a long time in my life, I think maybe I've got ADD. And then I saw this video and I think, I'm sure I don't. Now, I call this guy the Mohawk Man. And we're talking about how do we know? How do we know the Bible is God's Word? And I'm here to tell you that these facts that we've been talking about, the unity of Scripture, written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors from all different positions in life, in different languages, in different cultures the staggering probability of fulfilled prophecy in Christ, that, that you can't conclude that the way that we come as Christians and Christ followers to believe this is the book is, is we, we logically conclude. It's not that it's illogical. It's not that it's irrational or unreasonable. But that's just not how it works. And so if you're a person here I, I understand if you're saying, you know, I, I don't know about Christ and I don't know about the Bible. I think there's a lot of stuff out there that claims to be of God and this may be one of many or this, I just don't know. Well, here's what I know is that those of us here who believe in this word of God, it, it happened through the reading of the word of God. It, it happened through the work of the spirit confirming in our own hearts that this is true. It's not like the Spirit one day wakes you up and says, hey, you know that Bible that's collecting dust there on your bookshelf? You ought to read it. It's the real deal. No, it's actually in the reading of it that the Word 
rings true in our own hearts. Listen to what the scriptures say about this very point. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 13 and 14. This is what we speak, Paul says, not in words taught by us, taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. And here it is. The man without the Spirit, someone who's not a follower of Christ, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them them because they are spiritually discerned. And so it takes the work of the Spirit as we're in the Word where we actually come to the point of believing the Word. That's how it works. And so I'd say to you, if you find yourself wondering about, is this true? The best thing to do is not look at all the evidence for why it's true. Actually, read it. Take a gospel this week. Read Mark's gospel, 16 chapters. You can read it pretty quickly. And then ask God. Here's here's what I'd ask you to do. Ask God this. God, if this is your word, then as I read it, will you give me this spiritual discernment so that I really understand it and believe it, that it's you speaking to me and that your son, Jesus Christ, is the only hope for mankind. I, I encourage you to take that test, if you will. This is what the scriptures say about itself again that it is alive and it gives life, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's the word that brings us to a place of spiritual new birth. Peter talks about that, 1 Peter 1. For you've been born again. This is a spiritual new birth. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So I encourage you to read the Bible if you're not sure if it's the word of God. So the second question then is, all right, what do we mean then that the Bible has authority then? The Bible's authority, what does that mean? Well, here's how Webster deals with the word authority, a power or right delegated or given to direct the actions or thoughts of others. One of our modern-day theologians writes, God directs the beliefs and behaviors of his people through the revealed truth found in the Bible. All our ideas about God are measured, tested, and where necessary, corrected and enlarged by reference to the Bible's teaching. And so what we're not acknowledging here in the Bible's authority is that God is a speaking God and that God as our creator has the right to tell us how we ought to live and how we ought to think and what we ought to believe, what is true and what is not true. We're, we're, we're acknowledging that he has the right. Now, authoritative truth is something, especially as we use the phrase absolute truth, that is not in vogue in our day. In our day, Truth is relative. There is nothing that is absolutely true. We don't believe that. Or where we'll tweak it, we'll say is, well, what I decide is truth. What's true for me then becomes truth. So absolute truth has to do with my mind, my reason, maybe rooted in my experience or some of the things I've been working out in, our, in my own head. 
For others, they go, well, I don't have that kind of confidence in my ability to come to truth. So for me, authoritative truth has got to rest on people that know more and have thought about it longer than I have. And so I'm resting in the traditions of men or I'm resting on the authority of the church. That's the bottom line. Jesus talked all about the traditions of men. And when he was going after it with people, it was always the religious people who had set up these traditions. And they got on Jesus saying, why don't your followers follow our traditions? That's what godly people do. And he says, you got it all mixed up. You've got your traditions over God's word. It's the other way around. So you find out that the traditions you're supporting actually are breaking God's word. You don't even know what you're doing. You got it all mixed up. So what we're saying here is the scripture is the bottom line. And what we're trying to do in centering our lives is walking this line. And what we don't want to do is add to it and say, well, actually, that's pretty good stuff. But let me add a few more things of what it means to live with God. Let me, let me give you a few other things that aren't in the Bible, but I, I've come to learn these things about God. Let me add those to it. Or, or we go, oh, man, there's some hard stuff in here. You know, I'm going I'm to take that stuff out. Give me the eraser, would you? And, and we start saying, I'm not going to do that. It's like the Jesus Seminar. <laughs> we're going to tell you what, what Jesus really said. So we go through the whole New Testament and we get it down a handful of words. Well, guess what? They're, they're the easy ones. All the hard ones, they got rid of. Don't like those. Hard words, erase them. And so it means this, that if we're going to be people who believe and commit ourselves to the Bible's authority, it means in that last question, it, we're going to center our lives on God's truth. So what does that look like? Well, the first thing I'd say is if we are people who center our lives on God's truth, it means that we're centered on Christ because this word is centered on Christ. It's all about Christ from the beginning to the end. From the very first promise in Genesis 3.15 that Eve, one of your descendants, is going to crush the serpent's head. It was the first prophecy about Jesus Christ to the very end. In fact, Jesus said that the scriptures testify about me, John 5, verse 39. When he meets his disciples, on the day, um, Sunday of Resurrection Day, they're going to Emmaus. He, he teaches them about himself from the Old Testament, from, from the law, from the writings, from the prophets. And, and he blows their minds away, helping them see that it was all about him, and it is all about him. Luke 24, verses 24 and verse 47. I know this, that if we're a people, and as a church, that's going to be centering our lives on God's truth, then we are going to be a very Christ-centered people. That's what it means. We're going to think like Christ and we're going to behave like Christ. And we're going to live for Christ. And like Christ, we are going to be people who delight in his word. Centering our lives on God's truth means we delight to do God's word. We find it our joy. We meet this godly person in in, uh, Psalm 1 who's not taken in the counsel of the world. Rather, he delights in the law of the Lord. That's what he delights in. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law, he meditates day and night. So we remember the tea bag. This, this meditating mind of letting the word seep into our mind and our heart. We remember the cow. Now he's just always chewing on it, bringing it up again to chew on it some more. If we are people who center our lives on God's truth, then we delight in the word, we meditate on it. Which means we quiet ourselves before the word of God. Well, that's hard. Just out of curiosity, how many of you got a cell phone on you? 
That's a few of us here, at least half of us. How many of you have seen this? I've never done this, but I've seen it. A family's out for a walk, a couple's out for a walk, and somebody's on their cell phone. This is like, what is wrong with us? Here we are. We've got time together as a family, and somebody's on a completely different. Our lives are so plugged into stuff. Have you heard it this week? Corporate America has come to the conclusion, man, why it takes so long, that maybe it'd be a good idea to just say one day a week, like Fridays, no emails. Why would corporate America say that? I'll tell you why. Because they think they can make more money. Why do you think they can make more money? Because we're not productive. We've confused busyness for productivity. And we think we're being productive in our lives, in, in our Christian life. And you know what? We're not. We're so busy and we're shallow because we have no time to think, no time to reflect. There's music, there's noise, there's an internet, there's a text message, there's always something going. If we're people who are serious about centering our lives on God's truth, we need to unplug. We, we need to quiet ourselves before God and his word. Let me give you a second implication here of what it means to delight or center ourselves. It means we study the word. In Psalm 119, we see this. The psalmist says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Here it means that we study it like the early church who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, who examine the scriptures every day. Like what Paul said to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved, a workman who knows how to correctly handle God's word. It's like Jesus who said, look, you're worried about me eating? This is the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. His disciples gone off for bread. They, they find him and they think, man, do you, want some, do you want some food? Jesus, you look like you're starved. He says, guys, I've got food that you don't know about. My food? It's to do the will of God. Man cannot live by bread alone, he said, quoting Deuteronomy, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He understood that for us to live spiritually and to grow, we need the word. It's my food, he says. Do we read it? Are we guilty of neglecting the word of God? In the study questions this week, I've put a challenge at the bottom of the page. For some of us who just... That's not our pattern. I say just, hey, take 10 minutes a day this week to start reading God's word. Just start reading it. Take some time this week to say, you know what, I'm gonna write out 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 on a three by five or whatever it is. Maybe I'm gonna make it my screensaver. And I'm gonna just start, I wanna start thinking about this word. I wanna start memorizing this verse. I wanna start becoming more word-centered in my life, a person who delights in God's word. The third thing, delighting means that we seek and follow the Bible's counsel. The psalmist again writes in Psalm 119, your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. I think of the stuff that we need counsel for. We're in a tough relationship. We're in an impossible situation. Our own family maybe has betrayed us. There's injustice that's been going on. We're, We're in just tough circumstances. We've got a big decision that we need to make. And, and what we do is we go to friends and we tell them our circumstances and then we, we, we end it like this. What do you think I should do? Or we say, what would you do? And, and let me suggest, 
That's not the right question. If we are people who are centered on God's word, the question we want to ask in those situations is, how does God's word come to bear on this situation? So I want to go talk to someone who knows God and who knows his word because I don't want to know what anybody thinks I should do. I want to know what God thinks I should do. So I want to talk to somebody who can help me know, how does the scripture come to bear? How does the scripture come to bear if your husband's not here this morning and you're going, man, this is hard. I'm a follower of Christ and he's not. Well, good to know. 1 Peter 3 talks about that very situation. You ought to read that. That's a word for you. Well, what do you do when your own family's betrayed you? You find yourself where injustice has been served. Well, you know what? You ought to know and reread the story of Joseph. Genesis 37 through 48. It's a great story of God being with a person in an impossible situation. Oh man, I got a big decision. Well, you need to know what the Bible says about wisdom. God says, if you lack wisdom, ask of me and I'll give you wisdom. James chapter one, verse five. If we're people who delight and center our lives on God's truth, then we are people who are always seeking the counsel of God. And the last thing, it's the obvious one. If we're people who center our lives, who delight in God's truth, it means we obey it. What did James says? Don't just be a hearer of the word of God and so deceive yourself. You gotta do it. And that was Jesus' passion from the beginning to the end. At the beginning of his ministry, we, we read in Hebrews chapter 10, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God, and doing God's will would lead him to hanging between heaven and earth impaled on a Roman cross. He was passionate about doing God's will. And he says to us that if we want to show that we love him, we will be passionate about doing his will, following his word. John puts it this way, Jesus' words, John 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and show myself to him. God says, this is the one I esteem. The person with a lowly, contrite, humble spirit person who trembles at my word Door Creek Church this is the word of God this is the bottom line for us it's not a hard word it's a good word for us it's a word that gives life and preserves life it's, it's a word that can heal your marriage and fix your family and the hard relationships in your life here's what I know that the people that I've seen get their marriages back together was when the husband and the wife said to each other and said to God, I want to do marriage according to your word. And it starts to completely turn around. Moses says, this is not an idle word. These words are your very life. And so, may we be a people who are centered on the word. May we never lose our confidence in the word of God to teach us and rebuke us and to correct us and to train us in righteousness. May we never lose fact that, you know, it's through the hearing of the word of God that people come to faith. May you never come into the saying, I, I, I hope there's a great story this week. I hope you come with a growing hunger for, I need to hear God. 
I, I live in a world that's so full of noise and words and so many people are so messed up and I messed up and I just need to hear from God. May it change the way we do life and may it change those people who do life with us as we live our lives on the center line of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love that you're a God that unless you had revealed yourself to us, we would never know you. We would never know you in the fullness of who you are. And we would say that we will never get to the point where we have learned everything about you. We will spend eternity learning about you and all that we know about you is awesome and beyond us. We'd say to you that we want to grow to know you more, love you more, that we want to be more people of your book and so we pray that you'd create in us a greater desire and that you'd be merciful to us as we've gone through another week and maybe we've been guilty of neglecting. Well, not maybe, we have. And we've been guilty, Lord, of not doing all the things that we know. So help us. Help your people to be encouraged by your mercy and your grace. And may this book continue to change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.